welcome to Inspired By, the podcast that explores the strange true stories that inspired works of fiction. This episode we discuss Peter Jackson's film Heavenly Creatures, which explores the deeply intense and ultimately tragic friendship between Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker. Let's roll. Okay, let's roll. Let's do it. Hi guys, and we're back again. Episode 11. Jesus, is it 11? Yes, it's 11. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. We're going pretty well. Yeah. Second episode for 2019. Second episode. Second episode. I think we said Merry Christmas at the end of the first episode for the year I because edited we recorded that it out. last year. Oh, did I cut you? That out, yeah. Oh, okay. Because well, I'm like, this is just dated now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We should have edited in a Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I mean, yeah. it's the second one. <laughs> Whatevs. <laughs> anyway. So we're back and we're sticking with the theme of female centered. Um, movies yeah. for now anyway yeah and so this time around they were also sticking with the theme of murder inadvertently yeah, yeah. i think also it was um, wanting to move away from the states because yes you know obviously because a lot of movies are set in america which is fine but um, we wanted to move away from just doing american stories and look outside of in, outside of america to other parts of the world yeah well, you know, it's kind of easy to do American films because the the entertainment industry is a big part of their exports. Yeah. It's a big part of their culture. Yeah, we decided to look outside and into more international films. And so this time we're talking about Peter Jackson's 1994 film, Heavenly Creatures. Yeah. Which was Kate Winslet's debut. Yeah, and Melanie Linsky's yes. as well. Who I believe is in now in Big Bang Theory. Uh, I don't watch that I shit. Yeah, but yeah, but I've seen her in heaps of American shit. She was she's been in some terrible sitcoms. Like she was also in um, Two and a Half Men. Oh, maybe that's what I meant. It was some shitty sitcom that I don't watch. I think it might have been Two and a Half Men. Then <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think you're right. But she has done a few other. She's done other movies and other things. But uh, as people may know from previous episodes, I've said this before. But Kate Winslet is like my favorite actor. I love her. In pretty much every movie she's ever been in. I'm a big fan of hers as well. I've been a fan since... uh, Don't judge me for this, guys. But I've been a fan since Titanic. I loved Titanic. I was like 13 or whatever when it came out. I love Titanic too. I was 13. We should do Titanic. We should. I I love Titanic. Okay, so... so, Okay, we're going way off topic. We have. So I'm a massive Kate Winslet fan. And um, when I was going on a Kate Winslet kick about 10 years ago, um, or maybe, maybe about 15 years ago, so I watched this film... And, um, yeah, so I've seen it a few times since, but we both, I know that you've seen it a few times as yeah. well, one of your old favourites. Like, this came out in 94, and I was still in high school then, and I believe I watched this film when I was still in high school, but not at 94, I th- have a feeling it was more probably like 96, 97. Yeah. And I bought the film on DVD, I don't have mm. that DVD any longer, so yeah, I've seen this, and then my f- best friend and I became obsessed with the film and watched it multiple times it was yeah. one of our film obsessions yeah. um yeah so I am very familiar with yeah. this one I've probably seen it a handful of times as well and um so yeah it was definitely a film that we both it's definitely a film that we both love and wanted to do because we knew it was based on a true story yeah but the film focuses on the friendship between Juliet Hume who's played by Kate Winslet 
and Pauline Parker, who's played by Melanie Linsky. The film is set in New Zealand, so Juliet's family moves over from England to New Zealand. Her father is a professor. He becomes a rector at the University of Canterbury. And Juliet and Pauline meet in school. And they first kind of bond over the fact that they're both have had illnesses they both were quite sick as children so they initially bond over that and they develop into a quite intense friendship which includes a quite vivid uh, fantasy world so the climax comes when Juliet's parents divorce and her father is going to move back to England and on the way he's going to drop Juliet off with her aunt in South Africa so basically it means that the girls will be separated and this causes them a lot of distress And Pauline's mother, of course, won't let her Pauline go with Juliet as much as they both insist on it. And so they feel like the only way to overcome that obstacle is to get rid of the obstacle. And the obstacle being Pauline's mother. So they end up killing Pauline's mother. And so that's essentially what the film is about. The the film doesn't really look at the court case that follows, but we'll discuss that here. Yeah. And um, it's been a few years since I've seen it, and I forgot how amusing it was in parts. Just how funny it was. There were some parts that I genuinely thought were funny. Yeah, that's true. I didn't really think about it until you said it today, and I was like, yeah, I guess so. Like, But in a sort of absurd way, yeah. in, in that sort of Peter Jackson absurd yeah. fantasy way. I forgot how Peter Jackson this film is like how (laughs) how much it is definitely one of his movies like when you look at his earlier works um the absurd horror films that he would do it's definitely got that absurdist kind of over the top kind of touch to it yeah well Um, he did this movie after bad taste after meet the feebles yeah but he'd also done dead alive about two years before as well so he was known for horror in New Zealand and across the world because obviously Bad Taste got a lot of cult, got a yeah. cult following around the world. But he wasn't hugely known. And this was the movie that really boosted him into Hollywood because yes. Miramax picked up this movie. And, and it was nominated for Oscars. Yeah. Best screenplay, I think. Yeah. it. Yeah. So it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It was also featured in the Venice International Film Festival where it won a Silver Lion Award. Um, it gained a lot of critical praise across the board. So, yeah, it was just a really well-received film. So, yeah, and also, as we said, Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky, it was their breakout roles. Yep. Um, I think Kate Winslet had done some TV. She was in a few sitcoms in Britain, so people knew who she was in Britain. And she'd grown up doing theatre and stuff like that too. Yeah, she was a child actor, basically. Yeah. Um, but Melanie Linsky had only done a few school plays. She really hadn't done anything. And Peter Jackson really liked that about her because she had an innocent quality which she could bring to the role. Yeah, and she was, like, his wife, Fran Walsh, really hunted across New Zealand for the perfect girl to play Pauline Parker. Yeah, she definitely found her because Melanie Linsky just embodies that. You look at a photo of Pauline Parker and Melanie Linsky side by side and they look so similar. So she's really gotten... 
the look down. She really was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that, in that role. Great performances on both parts. Oh, so like, great. Kate Winslet was really just oh. expressive and kind of over the top a little in some of her performances, but it suited the whole atmosphere of the film. Yeah, it was exactly what she was supposed to be like in real life. I don't know about that. I there's always that create creative uh, license and lease sort of taken. So the thing I like the most about the film is that Peter Jackson, who wrote the screenplay with his wife, as you mentioned before, Fran Walsh, he used a lot of excerpts from Pauline Parker's uh, childhood diaries. Well, all of the voiceovers were from her diary, which adds this whole other element to it. Yeah. I think you get a real insight into... The character of Pauline. Yeah. And also what was going on. Because they actually both had diaries too, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. Later. I mean, they, they may, it's strongly suggested, it was strongly suggested in Pauline's diary that um, Juliet also had a diary. So yes. the likelihood is that she had one, but it was never found. So it might have been destroyed. We it don't was know. destroyed. Yeah. In this documentary that I watched, they talk about the diary. Uh, one of the pe- people that are being interviewed. It gets a bit speculative, this um, documentary, but he says that he talks to someone who had met the gardener of the Humes and he said, oh, yeah, I burnt the diary. Oh, right. I couldn't find anything that that, um, made that a definite. But, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious, I think, that it was destroyed. So I also thought, because I'm like, well, that's, that's a lot of speculation, but then... And Perry is a well-known author. So Mm. I'm like, well, as someone who, as a child, was writing a lot, because they wrote a lot of plays, they wrote novels, Mm -hmm. which is discussed, which is shown in the film, Mm. and it's discussed in her diary, and it was also discussed during the court case. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, wouldn't it make sense for a girl who has a tendency to write a lot to also keep a diary yeah i think it i think it was like i said before it was strongly suggested in pauline's diary that juliet also had a diary so i think we can say pretty definitively that there was a diary we just don't know exactly what happened to it exactly until i didn't know that that was a possibility that it was you know Yes, yeah, that somebody come forward saying they'd actually burnt it. So wow, <laughs> I, know, I don't think right? they knew that during the trial because in the trial notes it just says possibly destroyed. Um, so maybe that came out afterwards. Maybe that was something that came out in, in this documentary. Also wanted to mention two actors who were in the film because <laughs> I love recognizing people from elsewhere <laughs> and it gives me a thrill, especially like watching the movie again after a couple of years and not recognizing them when I first watched it or the first few times I watched it. But so we've got Sarah Pierce who plays um, Honora Reaper, um, Pauline's mother. Um, so she she was in The Hobbit, um, which I actually haven't seen, um, but I recognize her from Australian TV. She was in Australian TV all throughout the 80s and 90s. I recognize her. She's, she actually lived in Australia. Um, she did a lot of children's TV, actually. And oh, she did right. a lot of – she was in, like, um, a country practice and all that sort oh, of wow, 90s okay. Australian TV. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, but I didn't um, – nothing specific ca- comes to mind that I have definitely watched obsessively. But she I re- remember her from Australian TV in the you 90s. You recognised her face. In the 80s and 90s, yeah. And so then also Clive Merrison – so Clive Merrison played um, – Juliet's dad in the film, Dr. Henry Hume. 
I was looking at him going, I know him from something. And then I remembered where I knew him from. He plays uh, Mark Corrigan's dad in Peep Show. And I just remembered him oh going, my God, cauliflower really? is not, it, cauliflower is traditional. That's <laughs> so funny because I have been watching that show for the first time. And that was the last episode I just watched. <laughs> yeah, he's from that. I did not pick it. Yeah, that's the he's the he's, he's my dad. dad. Cauliflower is traditional. <laughs> so I just loved that, and I actually wrote that in my notes. I wrote cauliflower is traditional in the notes. <laughs> Personally, I don't think it is, but <laughs> no, I, I agree with Mark on that one. I don't agree anyway. with a lot of him, but <laughs> yeah. and so he was in a lot. He's been in a lot of movies as well, like The English Patient and so on. But I think his best role is as Mark Corrigan's dad. But anyway, so um, uh, I don't know if you've got any... Uh, there's only one other thing I have to say about the film. Well, nothing besides really some of the research that was done behind the film. Um, but we've already spoken a bit about that, how they read the diaries. They also interviewed um, former classmates and teachers. They spoke with neighbours, family, friends, colleagues, policemen, lawyers and psychologists. Yeah, so they really did a lot of research for the film by the sounds of it to try and make it as authentic as possible. Yeah, to try and get to the nitty-gritty about it, I guess. And they also yeah. decided from the get-go, because the court case behind the crime um, was so sensationalised, they wanted to just focus on their friendship. Yeah, it doesn't look at the court case much. Um, there was in, There is a couple of interviews with Peter Jackson around where he talks about what they wanted to achieve with the film. They didn't want to make a bleak murder movie. What they wanted to concentrate on was the friendship of the girls, which you said earlier. They just wanted to concentrate on that uh, because it is fascinating, this obsessive relationship that they had. So we'll get into the real story now, a bit of background about the girls and their families, um, and then we'll we'll move on to the meeting and the murder. The meeting and the murder. Those are my headings in my, uh, <laughs> my notes. So we'll start with Pauline. She was born Pauline Yvonne Reaper uh, on the 26th of May, 1938 in Christchurch. She had an older brother, which died shortly after his birth in 1936. And I read an older sister. She had an older sister as well called Wendy, but I didn't find much about her. But she also had a younger sister who was born with Down syndrome and grew up in a home um, away from the family. Oh, I didn't so know that. I only knew that she had a younger brother. No, in this um, in this period in history, no, she, oh, wait, she, no, she didn't sorry, have a younger was, brother. You might be thinking of Juliet. I'm thinking of Juliet, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> in this period in history, people with a disability and mental illness weren't treated very well at all. So no. um, as we, a lot of people may already know that. But yeah, so the, the younger sister with Down syndrome was sent away to a, a home to live away from the family. So that's quite sad. Family shame. Yeah. So her mother um, was called Enora Parker. Um, she was born in Birmingham, actually. Uh, it said all the information I can find about her was that she was born to a, a lower middle class family. Uh, they they emigrated to New Zealand in 1927 when she was 18. Her father was in the war. Apparently, it's not known whether he died or whether the parents separated. I think the likelihood is that he died in the war. Right. And the First World War. Um, then she, So she moved, she emigrated to New Zealand with her mother when she was 18. She met her husband, um, Herbert, who was 15 years older than her in, in between 1929 and 1931. It's not sure exactly when they met. But so Herbert, he was born in Tasmania, Australia in 1894. 
His family were of German origin and he moved to New Zealand in 1910 when he was 16. But then he joined the army and served in World War One, and he was stationed in Cairo. So this is interesting information, I think, which gives you a bit of a background about Pauline's family, which I think is important because it outlines what her psychological state may have been due to her family circumstances. Okay. So that's why we're discussing this as well. So while Herbert was in Cairo, he actually married a woman called Louise MacArthur, who was 34. Um, he was 21 at the time. So that's wow. really unusual. So she was English. She was born in India to English parents, I believe. So they were married. She'd been married before. Okay. So she was 34. He was 21. They got married. They moved back to New Zealand after the war and had two children. Oh, wow. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. So they had two children. So I don't know. And it's not known exactly what their relationship was like. It mustn't have been good. He was quite young, I suppose. And she was older. They had two kids. Um, But then Herbert met Honora when he was doing some bookkeeping for a law firm uh, that Honora was working for. Um, She was young, but she wasn't 17, as suggested in the film, because they didn't move to New Zealand until she was 18. So she wasn't 17. She probably was around 20 when they met. That's what all I could find. I think she was working as a typist at the law firm, but that's just speculation. I don't know what she was doing there. I think that's a pretty solid guess. I, I think so. When you look at women's roles, like employment roles, tended yeah. to be that kind of secretarial. She wouldn't thing have been a lawyer. Work in an office. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So um, what happened after they met was that Herbert left his family to take up with Honora. Um, so she was around 20 at this time and he was about 35 or so. So he left his two kids and his wife and she would have been in her um, in her 40s. Yeah. And their kids were sort of, I think, eight and 13, around that age. Um, so he left. It, it, it's not not much is known about why he left. I couldn't find any information about that. I mean, it's not known. But he never got divorced from his, from his wife. And that's so why. So that's why Pauline is known as Pauline Parker and the murders are known as Parker Hume, the Parker Hume murder, because... And Nora and Herbert were never married because he never got divorced. Uh, yeah, see, I knew that they were never married. Yeah. But I could nothing that I read ever brought up the fact that he had been previously married but not divorced. Yeah. So I was like, well, why wouldn't... Because tradition dictated back then that, you know, yeah. if you're going to have children together, you, you, get you get married. Yeah. That was the expectation. Yeah, and so it's not... Apparently the um, parents knew the deal, but I guess... I suppose Honora only had her mother. Maybe she was just happy to see her daughter in a relationship. I don't know. And I think Herbert's parents weren't even in the country. They were back in Australia, um, back yeah. in Tasmania. So maybe that they, they didn't care. And they didn't let it be known to the wider public that they weren't married. No, they lived as a married couple. She called herself Mrs. Reaper as well. She did. So I suppose they, they just lived as husband and wife, which by today's standards is totally fine. Yeah. It's just you a know? de facto relationship. Exactly. Yeah. But you can imagine the pressure. Maybe Pauline knew. Maybe she didn't know. Maybe she knew. It's not known whether she was aware that her father had another family or not. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. I couldn't find any information about it. I don't think they tried to hide it. Apparently, um, Herbert paid money, maintenance money to the family, right. but had limited, if any, contact with them after a few years 
I don't know why there's not much, not much is known about it because why would you keep those records anyway? Yeah. So basically in the fifties, when all this went down, Herbert was manager of a fish shop in Christchurch called Dennis Brothers Fish Shop. It's very important to know the exact name of the fish shop where he was manager at. <laughs> yes. And Honora ran a boarding house from the family home. Yeah, which you see in the film. Yeah, so that that was all true. If Now we'll talk about Juliet's um, parents as well. Her mother was called Hilda Marion Hume. She was born in 1912 to a socially prominent Anglican clergyman. Um, so she was born into high society. Yeah. But her father, who was Henry Rainsford Hume, Rainsford, such yes. a fabulous <laughs> middle name, he was born in 1908 in Southport, Lancashire. So he was not born into the upper classes. He was more, you know, he was kind of more like lower middle class. But I, I couldn't find out how he rose to go to Cambridge. Like if you if you're from Lancashire, it's... You know, he must have had the grades, from, man, because he was a nuclear physicist. He was. He went to Cambridge, and he was he was a mathematical physicist and a nuclear physicist, and so scholarship he, maybe something like that. I I don't know. I mean, he was he was one. He was supposed to be sort of lower middle class because there was starting to be a middle class around this time in history. So I think his family was sort of middle class, right? Yeah. Um, and so somehow he made it to Cambridge. Um, where he became a mathematical physicist and a nuclear physicist. He also worked at the Greenwich Royal Observatory. He had a job there. And the family lived in London during the Blitz. Oh, wow. They would have lived through quite a lot living um, living in London in the Blitz. Yeah. And so I read something about a couple of episodes that the family went through which may have contributed to a kind of PTSD that Juliet might have had. So that's definitely a possibility. It's also not much is known about this, but when I looked up Henry Hume in on the internet, I found out that he one of the things he's most known for is actually being a co-creator of the H bomb. Whoa. So he worked on the H bomb, which is pretty fucking intense. His his like entry into most things online is Father of a murderer and inventor of the H bomb, or co-creator of the H bomb. What a legacy to leave behind! <laughs> what a fucking legacy, man. So, like, most of the things I've I read about him didn't mention that at all. And then, but his entry in Wikipedia mentions it. A couple of other biography websites that I found about him mentioned it. And so, it's one of the things he's known for during the war, um, when Juliet and her mother and younger brother were in London, he went to America for a couple of years to work on the H-bomb during the war. So, wow, that's fucking crazy. And so also another thing that happened was that after Jonathan was born in 1944, so this is Juliet's younger brother, Hilda got really sick and she, she had like postpartum depression and she had complications after the birth. So she was sent to convalesce with the baby and Juliet was sent up to northern England. The timeline of when she got sick with uh, pneumonia and subsequently was diagnosed with tuberculosis. She nearly died from pneumonia twice 
And as a result of untreated pneumonia, or I guess it wasn't treated very well, it was wartime Britain, so I guess we'll forgive yeah. them. They didn't have the NHS yet, <laughs> so it's okay. Um, but, yeah, she developed tuberculosis. She was really, really sick. She nearly died twice, and she was actually sent to the Bahamas um, yeah, to, to convalesce in between the ages of, um, I think she was she was eight when she was sent there, and she was nine when she came back. I also read somewhere that she went to, she did go to South Africa as a child as well, yeah. but then elsewhere they didn't mention South Africa. They, you know, so I don't know, maybe she went there or maybe she didn't. I, I found conflicting information about that. Either way, she grew up with a lot of childhood illness and also a lot of separation from both her parents. Yeah, with her dad going to America, her mother being sick, her being sick, being sent to, uh, out of the country, away from her parents. She was constantly separated from her parents. And they kind of bring that's kind of touched on in the film. Like you see that when Juliet is told by her mother that her father's going to England for a couple of mm. months and that her mother's going to go with her. And she reacts with, well, I want to come with you too. And she just starts to break down and cry. It's like, yeah, that's a... She's distressed because she's being abandoned yet again. Oh, just over and over again. Yeah. I feel really sorry for her, actually. Um, she, Her parents seemed to... I mean, it was, one, it was done back then. Kids were sent away. It was pretty common back then. So... I don't know. I mean, it, it was very common for the upper classes to send their kids to boarding school. Yeah. My, I mean, not that my dad was in the upper classes, but my dad was sent to boarding school because, um, you know, I'll, my and his siblings were all sent to boarding school. It was just what you did back then. My dad was born in the 50s, though, not in the 30s. But, you know, people were just sent to boarding school. Kids were sent to boarding school. That was just the norm. But anyway, so, but she was away for, I think, for different reasons, because she was sick, because her mother was sick, because, yeah. yeah, so there was a lot of distress there. Also, it, it's, um, I read a lot about her having screaming nightmares, which I think was part of the PTSD after being involved in the Blitz in the UK. So she was very young during the Blitz, but that kind of thing can psychologically scar you in ways that you don't even know about. Yeah, totally. And, like, for a child as well. Because I've got here that she was born in... Well, both Juliet and Pauline were born in 1938. Yeah. So that's just... at just before the beginning of World War Two, So, yeah, which lasted for, like, six years, from 39 to 45. Yeah. So that's a long time. That's, like, the earliest point of her life is brought up around warfare. Yeah, I mean, and living through the Blitz, like, anyone who lived through the Blitz, they didn't leave London during the Blitz. They were there because yes. her father was working at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, so they were right in the thick of it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty fucked up. You know, you can imagine somebody having PTSD after living through that. And apparently she had these screaming nightmares. So Juliet's family moved to New Zealand in 1948 when Juliet was 13. The movie doesn't go into this, but she was actually... So she in the movie, you kind of feel like she moves there and she goes straight to high school and meets Pauline. But that isn't actually how it, how it happened. She first, she went to boarding school, of course because that's just what people did back then, um, in Hastings on the North Island, um, away from her family yet again. She's so fucked up. So she apparently she was really unhappy and, like, acted out heaps and wasn't doing very well at that school. Um, so she returned to the family within a year. And then she apparently she spent the rest of her time in, I suppose, what we would call primary school at right. home, like 
doing lessons at home. Homeschooling. Yeah. And so then she started high school in 1952. Um, she started at the private Anglican girls school, not Christchurch um, girls high school. Um, but then she, she did an IQ test and it was found that she had 170 IQ which is pretty fucking impressive. Yep. We, I think we know now that IQ high. tests are pretty limited in their accuracy when it comes to different types of intelligence. Yeah, exactly. But it's yeah. analyzing a certain type of intelligence. Exactly. Academic intelligence yeah. only. But anyway, so she was at least highly academically intelligent. And then her parents decided to send her to a bigger school where she would be more stimulated rather than a small private girls school she went to Christchurch girls high school which was a a much bigger school so back to Pauline around this time Pauline is um at the the high school um Pauline also suffered from health problems um as you said Nat so the health problem that she had was osteomyelitis which is an inflammation of bones an inflammation of the bones due to infection so anything can cause that infection. It's basically just a bacteria infection inside the bones. It can it usually affects arms, legs, pelvis or spine, but it can happen to any bones. Right. So I think in the movie she mentions that it she says something like it turns your bones to chalk. Um yeah. So and I think I think what it they means were draining is draining it for 2 years. Yeah, and that that is um pretty accurate I suppose because they have to drain the fluid from from the bones you know it can require surgery and i think it's a lot less serious now than it was then because of advances in medical technology yeah that makes sense but i can but by the sounds of it it would cause the bones to be very brittle if they didn't drain that fluid absolutely i think that's true it sounds like um like it would have been very painful and yeah. apparently Pauline was on a lot of painkillers. She had chronic pain even after the surgery and after being in hospital for two to three years. It's not known exactly how long she was in hospital, but she was at least in and out of hospital for most of her adolescence and may have spent a large stint from two to three years in hospital. So very painful, yeah. you know, bandages. And in, in the movie, you see that big scar on her leg, which is obviously where she had surgery to help the bones or whatever. So she couldn't play sports. Neither of the girls could play sports, apparently. No. So that's why in the film, you see them sitting to the side where the other girls are doing their calisthenics, which is such a great word. <laughs> so Pauline also had a lot of mobility issues as a child. Uh, she would She would have been like confined to home a lot i think if it had been nowadays she probably would have been given a wheelchair or something because her legs were so bad she couldn't walk properly when she was a kid yeah wheelchair and then probably some physical therapy or yeah physiotherapy to help gain mobility and strength uh, in her legs because there are ways to um, encourage like muscle growth that doesn't mean uh, having to walk about yeah like there's electro uh, electro stimulation that can be done to muscles for like paraplegics and stuff to make sure that the muscles essentially don't die or become overly weakened yeah because something else about um about the condition that she had is that when the bone it's possible that the bones die and have to be removed so she is lucky that it wasn't as bad as that and that she regained her mobility as she got older yeah so yeah but i think if she was around today um as a child i mean it probably wouldn't have wouldn't have been 
just like tuberculosis, it would have there would have been a lot more that we could have done. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's true to say that both girls would have been fairly scarred by what they went through medically. I think. Uh, I think so as well, and I think that's part of what drew them to each other. Well, they could understand. They understood what it was like. Yeah. So to that level, I think it would have been hard. And especially for Juliet being shipped all over the fucking place. Like, I can mm. I can relate a little to that. I didn't have the level of illnesses that she had as a kid. But I went to, like, eight or nine different primary schools. Oh, and me it's too. Hard yeah. to make connections with people when that is constantly happening. And then yeah. when you meet someone who understands what it's like to be really ill all the time, then, of course, there's this instant bond. Yeah, and I think that's what really drew them together initially. Absolutely, and we—I think you and I, Nat, know just how much women can be bonded by the pain and the shit that they go <laughs> through. Because that's how we—that's one of the re- ways that we bond. Talking about oh, our yes. chronic pain and stuff like that, and, you know, uh, fucking women's fucking uh, goddamn issues and fucking endometriosis. <laughs> So yeah, so I think I think that's definitely one of the reasons why they bonded, and they both. Um, I think one of the things that I was reading about was that um, Juliet. One of the words used to describe her was that she was a lot more confident than yeah. Pauline. Um, Pauline was re- really withdrawn, um, and even that high school photo, which we'll definitely post. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> up there's a, a high school photo of her. I don't think Juliet's in it. it must have been before she joined the school or something. But um, there's a. A school photo and Pauline's just got her head down. You see it in the film yeah, as well, they being re- taken. They enact it, reenact it <laughs> in the film. So good. Uh, the look that Melanie Linsky does, which is just so spot on. Yeah. But um, they brought that up in this... Uh, the documentary that I watched is called Reflections of the Past. Ah, I didn't see this one. Um, yeah, so... It's available on Vimeo uh, for anyone in Australia who's interested. You're going to need your VPN. (laughs) It doesn't cost much to rent. It was like $2 American. But uh, if you're outside of of Australia um, and you're interested, definitely give it a watch. I can put a link up to that as well. Yeah. But they interviewed um, a few people, a few fellow classmates of theirs, and they said that, yeah, Pauline Moore was always a bit, like, sullen and sad and just kind of withdrawn. Maybe she had depression. I guess depression wasn't a thing back then. It wasn't as well known. Just like PTSD, that wasn't a thing back then. So Juliet may have had PTSD. I reckon, definitely. She, yeah, and it definitely sounds like she did. But PTSD was not a thing back then. They no. called it shell shock. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's likely that these girls suffered from, and it is a real shame that they never did any psychological evaluations that were more advanced than they would have been back then on yeah. the girls. Cause it would have been really interesting to actually hear like a modern interpretation of what their conditions may have been. Cause that fascinates me. Uh, with, yeah. Rather than what, the interpretations <laughs> of their conditions were, which we'll get into the later. 50s version of it. Oh boy! <laughs> I would really like to know <laughs> what a, a clinical psychologist thinks about this now. I couldn't find much about that. I, I could only find it from a legal standpoint. Nothing. I'd love to hear what a clinical psychologist would make of, of all this. <laughs> but anyway, so so the girls met in 1952 at the school. 
Yeah, and as you said, like, Juliet was very confident, but she also had a lot of um, power over the teachers Mm. because her father was the rector at the university and a lot of the teachers that was brought up in this documentary, they were like, yeah, they were matrons. Yeah. So back then, like, unwed women kind of thing. and, And they were impressed by this girl who seemed quite exotic having lived in various countries and stuff and you see how Juliet is introduced that way mm. into the classroom she does have a lot of confidence in the film yeah um yeah. Th- that had a lot of sway over teachers so she could speak up at teachers like other students couldn't and she could get away with that simply because of the position her father had at the university. Yeah, and I actually wrote down what a rector is because I, I sort of had a, a fairly good idea of what a rector was, but I, I wanted to look up the definition. So if anyone doesn't know what a rector is, it does sound rude, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, a rector is a, a cleric who functions as an administrative leader, usually for an educational body, so like a university or a college or something. Right. So, but the, and there is an ecclesiastical, love that word, an ecclesiastical aspect to that, but it's not like a vicar or a reverend. It's slightly different to that. Right. So it's a bit confusing, um, even after hearing the definition. Yeah. Well, because he, he wasn't a vicar or anything. He wasn't. But it denotes this religious aspect to the role. Yeah. But then when you look back at schools, I can't speak about schools in other countries, but especially English colonies, such yeah. as New Zealand and Australia were back then. And up until not very long ago, uh, all schools were pretty much Christian schools. Yeah. So there was a strong religious aspect to schooling in Australia, in New Zealand, because of the English heritage that had been brought from settlement. Yeah, and especially at universities. But part of it was that he was meant to be... It's sort of like if you are president in the US, for example, you have to be a Christian, which is so fucked. But let's just say if if you are a rector at a university in New Zealand in the 50s, you have to be Anglican or Church of England... And then, so he was a rector, as in, which I know, rector actually comes from the Latin meaning ruler. Right. So it's like being in charge of the school. He's not the principal, but he's in charge of the school. And there is an ecclesiastical aspect to that because the school is religious. Yeah. So it's like you have to be religious to be this leader. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess that's the aspect of it. Yeah. But it's just interesting because, I, I, you know, I didn't really know the exact definition of it. So if anyone's interested, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the definition. There's a nugget of information for you. Um, so the girls bonded over their um, shared experiences, being ill. I guess they were both different to a certain extent. They, uh, you know, Juliet being from overseas and Pauline... I think her experiences, not being able to make friends and play sports, she didn't have any friends apparently before Juliet. Yeah, well, apparently they were both a bit socially reclusive and became mm. more so when they, as they became closer and closer. Like they wouldn't really mix with other girls yeah. in their class or at the school. Yeah. But I guess, you know, they didn't feel like they had much in common with people, those other girls. You think back to what it was like in high school. Like, I didn't have a million friends. I wasn't, like, the weirdest kid in the in, <laughs> in school. Well, high school was the one school where I didn't jump around to a million different schools. So it was the one consistent. I was in the one consistent place the whole time. And I kind of just, like, 
went under the radar really like no one really gave me much trouble but I wasn't popular by any sense of the word yeah stuff like that like I just seeked out people who were kind of similar to me or had similar interests and yeah I went to four different high schools and um two one of the first high school I went to was catholic and shit second one was christian and shit the (laughs) third one was a girl school and shit and then I went to a a really cool school which was um you didn't have to wear a uniform and that was a oh, great wow. school. Yeah. That was a great school. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like I got bullied a lot in high school. Um, in but but at the same time, I was drawn to people who were similar to me, as in like people who were different um, and weren't you know your sort of popular teeny bopper types. Or nineties types. Type. Yeah, exactly. So more like. Um, outsiders in a way like would read books nerd culture that kind of thing you can definitely see how the girls would have been drawn to each other yeah uh, with their shared experiences and also um as you see in the film which should be our catchphrase as you see yeah i know right (laughs) um they would both have to sit out when sports were played so there there was an opportunity for them to connect and talk to each other while the other girls at the school were playing sport and doing their calisthenics and stuff. So. And they both clearly had a love of writing and reading. So and that Mario was, Lanza. I know, Mario Lanza. <laughs> but not Orson Welles, no. Oh, well, I think later <laughs> later they both became, um, they both had a love for him after they saw The Third Man or was it yeah, Third Man? The Third Man. Yeah, that's yep. when in the movie you see Juliet, she gets it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. also, I don't think we mentioned this before, but when they're leaving that film, or it could be the Mario Lanza film, it's the Mario Lanza film they go and see, whatever film that was, they actually bump into, Juliet bumps into a yes. homeless guy that's actually Peter Jackson yeah. doing his very Hitchcock-esque appearance, cameo, cameo appearance in the film. Yeah. Very Hitchcock there. We well, also played like a homeless bum type in Lord of the Rings in yeah. Fellowship. Yeah. He <laughs> loves doing those little appearances, which are great. I think I, lo- I yeah, love, I love those little nuggets. <laughs> yeah. So the, the girls had a love of opera, as we saw with Mario Lanza. They loved him. I've never heard of him before. No, um, I'd never heard of him before the film. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, I mean, I guess we went around in the 50s, so that can no. be excused. Between them, they rejected Christianity woohoo, and created their own religion <laughs> with saints to worship and its own rules and, and morals and set of beliefs and all the rest of it. Yeah, in their, what they call the fourth world. Yeah, yeah. So in the film you see that Mario Lanza is a saint and... Um, oh, James Mason. Thank you. And Ava Gardner and they had a, they had a bunch of others and I think Orson Welles eventually. Yeah. <laughs> because he, he had great acting skills, not because he was attractive or anything. But I think they also... I think Orson Welles was attractive. Well, not to them, but yeah, I, sure. I've never really considered it. I don't know if that was, if I'd put him top of my list or anything. <laughs> no, but I don't think he's unattractive. Anyway, it's off topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, what was I going to say? Uh, I was going to say, he's no Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I just went blank for a second. He's no Ryan. Orson Welles is no Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> But yeah, so they they had this idea in their head that they were going to move to Hollywood and like write films and books yeah. and become stars. And I don't know if you read this, Nat, but in one of um, the entries in Pauline's diary, apparently they spoke about moving to Hollywood to for so one of them or both of them, whatever, 
would marry James Mason and then they, they couldn't they didn't know if he was married or not so they they said that if he was they were going to murder his wife oh my god <laughs> so that they could be with James Mason because apparently that would work yeah yeah so that they wrote Pauline wrote that in her diary so I thought that was pretty funny oh my god no I did not read that <laughs> so they, they wrote a lot of things like that in their diary actually which obviously and I think Peter Jackson said this in an interview that he gave shortly after the film was released. Uh, he said lots of people probably have fantasies about murdering yeah. people. Especially when you're a teenager and hormones are running high and you're like, you tell your parents you hate them and you, well, you know, whatever. Well, you're not thinking about the consequences of actions because you, you're, you're, you're becoming like consciously aware of the outer world. I was going to say something that was really reductive, so I don't want to say that, which is that they haven't experienced the world, which is bullshit. They have, because everyone has an experience of the world from the moment that they're born. But the difference with teenagers and children is that teenagers become more aware of how they fit in a social group, how Mm. they fit in a larger picture. Yeah. So there's that sort of transition of consciousness. Yeah, and you really are starting to learn hopefully have learned quite a bit by them but are starting to learn the consequences to your actions and that actions have consequences yeah and like yeah. who knows it might have just been in jest like yeah yeah exactly. like fuck it if she if if you and if he's got a wife then we're just gonna fucking kill her like yeah people kids <laughs> say this kind of thing you know teenagers say this kind of thing adults say this kind of thing yeah <laughs> but they don't necessarily mean they're gonna do it yeah exactly <laughs> so i think if, if you have kids out there and you're reading their diary and you're concerned that they're going to kill someone, then chances are they're not going to do it. Unless they start describing in, like, gory detail and it becomes an obsessive thing where it's like, okay, there's a lot of entries here that are about <laughs> killing someone or something. It's like, all right. Yeah. Then, then sure, raise those red flags. Exactly. Especially if animals start start finding dead animals around. Then oh, <laughs> that's a massive red flag. And that's definitely one of the things that most serial killers have been found doing. Uh, yeah. Not all of them, though. Not all, but, but a it's lot. a pattern enough for it to become a cliche. Yes. So they also, I don't know, I didn't read heaps and heaps about this make-believe world that was so brilliantly portrayed in the film with these sort of wonderful clay figures. And I was watching some stupid review on YouTube. I mean, bless the person who did it. Um, they were obviously just making a video um but they definitely got some things wrong they said that it was cg i don't think it was cg no absolutely not because you (laughs) could tell when cg was used in the film oh you or like a green screen yeah for the transition into the fourth world (laughs) and then when one got chopped in half that was probably the only CG. But yeah. No, those were latex um, costumes. Oh, they were latex. I, I was thinking to myself, I bet there's some kind of rubber latex situations that people are wearing. Because I, I couldn't tell what the material was, but I was sure it wasn't CG. No. <laughs> Stupid to think that would have been amazing CG. 90s level CG. I mean, though, granted, like Terminator 2 came out in 91, but then... That had a huge budget behind it. Yeah. But then when you look at, like, cheaper CG, like uh, Lawnmower Man in the 90s, the, the CG wasn't great back then, <laughs> basically, watched... unless you had a lot of fucking money behind your film. Peter Jackson had some mo- the most amazing practical effects that are still really good today. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they age 
they, I think they age pretty well. It's like, but then there are things like that use computer effects and practical effects, like Evil Dead and stuff. Yeah, which um, which I think has aged really well too. So it is possible that the girls had a sexual relationship. Well, it's one aspect that is touched in in the film, but they don't bring a lot of light to it. It's kind of like how it kind of their relationship leads to this point where they're re- reenacting sexual. They're definitely in bed having sex in the movie. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. One's playing the man and the other is the woman kind of thing. They're, they're playing roles. They're role-playing. Deborah, which is just Deborah Gina. with and Gina or whatever. Um, Charles. Yeah, Charles and Deborah, I yeah. think, um, were their names because they had – this made up world called what's it called like Brovonia or something? Bro- yeah, which <laughs> is like sounds like bro- Bronia, something like that. Brovonia, I think it was something. Yeah, like that. something yeah. like that. But that was definitely. I mean, that was obviously a sex scene in the movie. Yes. Um, which was. I wonder what that was like to film. It would have been a little awkward for, for such young girls, but at least some people at, at the age of eighteen, because I think they were both like seventeen, eighteen when they filmed the movie. Um. But it's better. It's a better introduction into sex scenes than doing it with a man. At least they were doing <laughs> it with another woman, you know, which sure. is kind of a nicer. Because you know, I, anyway, I would find that easier than than with a dude at, as an eighteen year old. But yeah, it would have been an interesting scene to film, I think. And I think that's that must be why they had to get girls that were a little older doing. Oh a scene yeah, like absolutely. That. You couldn't yeah. have underage actors doing that. Yeah, You'd but you be in a whole lot of trouble. But yeah, so they were they were definitely over eighteen, were they? No, actually, I, I think Melanie I Linsky was seventeen. But anyway, so they were over the age of consent. Let's just say yeah, that. yeah. So anyway, yeah. so a large part of the sensationalism around the trial was the lesbian aspect, inverted commas, lesbian aspect to their uh, relationship. And I only use the lesbian in inverted commas because. As what was brought up in this documentary, the term lesbian wasn't commonly known or Mm. used. It wasn't in the zeitgeist. No. Uh, A lot of the classmates, when this had come out in the papers and stuff, this lesbianism, they were looking it up in the dictionary and they were asking their parents what it meant and nobody knew what it meant. Yeah. Around this time in history, homosexuality was not only illegal, but it was seen as a mental illness. Yes. And that was a big part of the defense yeah. in the case, was that they were mentally unwell, that they were insane, and that was proven in the fact that they were lesbians. And so this documentary really brought up an interesting point of how it really demonized homosexuality and lesbianism in New Zealand at the time. And some of the women that were interviewed were lesbians and they talked about how suddenly there was an awareness of how, oh, I wasn't the only girl feeling this way. Yeah. But it's not something that I read a lot into and I kind of wish I'd spent a little more time looking into the impact of that on um, lesbian and gay people in that society at the time. But if you want to read about it, there is a book called uh, I don't remember what it's called at the moment it was 
it's mentioned in this uh, documentary. The two writers are featured in this documentary, and I'll um, put a link up. I saw that it's available on like Amazon and stuff like that. Well, so. there there is a, a a very thick book that was written about the case called So Brilliantly Clever. I don't know if that's the one you're referring no, to. It's, no, it's um, so so brilliantly clever is another book. I'm actually currently reading the book. It's written in a very weird way. It's written like the whole thing's a fiction. It's written like a novel, which I was not expecting. I was expecting it to be like a case study because it's written by a law professor. But so brilliantly clever is that line was taken from Pauline's diary. And it's how the girls described themselves as so brilliantly clever. (laughs) So it's a good read. I'm probably about a quarter of a way through it at the moment. It's a really thick book. The book that I was talking about before was called Parker and Hume, A Lesbian View. So it's Ah. written by two um, New Zealand scholars and written from a feminist slash lesbian perspective. So if anyone's interested. Yeah, I think that would definitely be interesting. I mean, when you think about New Zealand society in the 50s, there was only two million, there was only roughly two million people living in New Zealand in the 1950s so it was still quite a small country yeah um and i think quite conservative being that it came being that the society was still heavily influenced by being colonized by britain there's a, there's a lot of similarities between new zealand and australia simply because of that we are the southern colonies from my perspective and my opinion is that it, there is a, a likelihood that there was a sexual relationship between the girls. I, I do think it is a likelihood and one that seems to have been acknowledged both in the trial and by the media after the trial. Um, however, Anne Perry, who we'll talk about in more detail later, Anne Perry is Juliet Hume. She changed her name uh, and to Anne Perry after she became public and it was known that she was Juliet Hume, she's always denied that the girls had a sexual relationship. She admits it was obsessive, but she has denied that they had a sexual relationship. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's a very, there's a very strong likelihood that it was sexual, but Anne Perry's always denied it. Yeah. I I found that as well. Yeah. But the writers of this book, they, So I've got this quote here and they say, did Juliet and Pauline have a lesbian relationship? In our view, they did, though there are difficulties involved in using the term lesbian for women and girls of the past who may not have defined themselves in this way or who may not even have known that what they were doing was defined in that way. Yeah, exactly. But Anne Perry slash Juliet Hume denies it. And Pauline Parker has never spoken to the media at all. Or, no. or been a very public person since the trial. She has not spoken out or given any statements to the media or no. anything. We do know who she is now, but she yeah. doesn't speak to anyone. I mean, for a good reason, I suppose. She's she pretty rec- a private reclusive. Life. Very reclusive. Yeah. What I read. So, so we don't know. I mean, I think it was probably a poetic license to portray the girls as being sexual in the film. I think it's done in quite a... I think I it's done th- in a very sensitive way. Yes. I think also, though, that there are also insinuations of it in the diaries. Absolutely. Which is also what leads to them kind of prosecuting that in the... Or using it as both as a defense in the trials because it's insinuated 
in the film they use excerpts of Pauline's diary where there's that quote about how um oh I've got it here we felt very satisfied indeed we have now learnt the peace of the thing called bliss the joy of the thing called sin yeah so that heavily implies yeah. that there was a sexual aspect to their relationship i think it's definitely possible it's it's really possible and i think that it's understandable later in life to deny that as Anne Perry is actually religious now. And yeah, so, she's so a Mormon. Is, she's a Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> fucking Mormon. Jesus. So yeah, she's a, I thought of you Mormon. when I read that. I know. When I read that, I was like, Jesus Christ. I feel like we've spoken about, cause for anyone who doesn't know, I'm an ex Mormon. So if any of my family are listening to this, I'm really sorry, <laughs> but I'm not a very big fan of the religion. It's not my favorite. I'm not a fan of any religion. I have nothing against people being religious though. It's just not my cup of tea. So yeah, I did laugh when I read that she was a Mormon now, but obviously if you're religious, you're not going to want to admit to being, to having a sexual yeah, relationship no. with the same sex person because that's not what religious people do. And that's not what they like to talk about. So Anyway, it's her prerogative to keep that personal, though, just so that if she doesn't want us to know about it, then that is absolutely fine. Maybe she's telling the truth. Maybe she maybe it wasn't sexual. Maybe they didn't see it as sexual. Maybe it was just I don't know. But they definitely had a love. I think it was a deep relationship. They loved each other. Yeah. And we've all had those intense friendships that feel so intense. You love someone so much. We've all experience that or most of us have experienced that kind of love and I think when you're a teenager it does become obsessive you know I've definitely had obsessive relationships before where you become obsessive (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry (laughs) ex-boyfriends we've all been like that before in our lives so I don't know it's um it's possible so leading up to the murder um let's go get into what happened leading up to the murder so in, in 1954, Juliet's parents separated. You see that in the film. Juliet's mother, who was a couples counsellor or a therapist, she might have been a sex therapist, the 1950s yeah, yeah, version of a sex therapist, whatever that is, um, which, yeah, it was a strange job to have at that time when those especially in Christchurch, but coming from England where I suppose there would have been more therapists and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she ended up having an affair. So that is something that I couldn't find a whole lot of information about to verify that that actually happened, but it, it does seem to have occurred. Yeah, I saw a photo of the real Hilda Hume with her uh, lover turned husband. She eventually married him. Yeah, and the weirdest part about this is that, I mean, I don't know if it's weird or not. I guess we don't know much about Juliet's life after prison. Spoiler alert. Although she, Juliet <laughs> but, did move back to her mother in England and at, the, at that with her husband, which was the lover. So Yeah, and so Juliet changed her name to Anne Perry. So this guy's name was Bill Perry. Yeah. So she took on his surname, which, I, I don't know, it seems quite odd to me, but... I don't know. We don't know much about why she took it. If it was because of him or not, we don't know. I feel like that makes a lot of sense to me. Because you would want... If you're going to restart your life, you would want anonymity from... And a removal from your previous life. It makes sense that she changed her name, but I'm just not sure why she changed it to Perry. If it was because of him or not. I'd say so. That would make sense. 
around this time, Juliet had been sent to a convalescent home. And again, you see that in the film because she had a, a bout of tuberculosis. I don't know if it's possible to have a bout of it, but she had respiratory issues. And so she was sent to the convalescent um, home for a couple of months. She was away for a good long while. A sanitarium. A sanitarium, yeah. Um, such a weird is, word. So, it's an awful word. It usually means like, like a, a mental institution. Well, that's usually what it means. I yeah. think I think it was more like a place to convalesce, you know, um, where they could keep an eye on her and make sure that she was people. That's what happened back in those days. Yeah. People would be sent, sent away. away. Yeah, especially yeah. kids. They were sent away. Just sent away. Sent away for everything. Sent away to school. Sent away to be pregnant to outside of wedlock. Sent away sent to away. a mother's home. Just if you just have, go if, away if out you have of a, our sight. If you have a mental illness, sent away. Yeah. Like, just everything. So physical Juliet. illness, sent away. <laughs> so poor Juliet was sent away um, during this time, and you know, it was just like you see in the film. The girls were separated, and they were really heartbroken. And apparently, they did. Write write letters to each other is Deborah and Charles. Um, yes. And they, I think they found some of those letters. And um, Pauline did visit her a lot when she could. Both her and her mother would go visit yeah. Juliet. Because at that time, Pauline had also left school and she was going to a college. Mm. Yeah, she was attending a commercial college at the time, which yeah. you see in the film as well. Yeah, she became a typist or something in the film, and or maybe that was that was the college or something. I'd say so. Yeah, she was getting, she was trying to get a job anyway. She left school, and um, so she was obviously fighting terribly with her with her mother, her parents, and so Juliet came back, and uh, it's just like you see in the film. They were very happy to see each other again, and all the rest of it, and. But obviously there was still that issue of Juliet getting sick. The weather is not great in Christchurch. It's pretty cold because it's, um, you know, it's fairly, it's far down south. I've been to Christchurch actually, um, but I haven't been to much of New Zealand at all. I've never been to New Zealand. I really want to go. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I've only seen a tiny skerrick of it, but it's so beautiful. I'd love to go back. But yeah, Christchurch is stunningly beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cold there. We went in, I think we went in winter, which was probably a mistake because it was really no. fucking cold. It was great. <laughs> it was fantastic. It's Fuck so beautiful. Heat. It's so beautiful there. So it was probably not a good idea to be living in Christchurch with a respiratory condition. And so I think after this period convalescing, Juliet's parents realized that maybe Christchurch wasn't the best place for her. And with the parents getting separated, the idea was to send Juliet to uh, South Africa to stay with her aunt. At the time as well, though, after her, when she returned home from the sanitarium, both parents noticed a remarkable difference in both behaviors of the girls. They were becoming more uh, withdrawn from their parents more argumentative and they also started to worry about just how close the girls were yeah and you see that in the film as well the parents meet up and they discuss how um worried they are about all that that i just mentioned and they they did actually try to separate the girls but that only made things worse you know talking about the parents meeting and discussing things I actually read a little bit about Honora and Henry. So Pauline's mother and Juliet's father, they were actually born within an hour of each other. Oh, um, right. They were, they were born really close to together around the same time. 
so I don't know. And I, one of the websites I was I was looking at just discussed how weird it was that they were now living really close together, <laughs> but were born on the really other side of the world. On the other side of the world, yeah. So um, yeah. So I think they did. They they would have discussed how unhealthy they thought their relationship was becoming. It's definitely a part of the film that they discuss that, and you see. You see Juliet's dad like listening at the door while they're in the bath together and all that kind of stuff. So I think it, and and then you see, I think one of the things in the movie was that um, Pauline goes to a therapist. I I don't know if that really happened or not. I couldn't find anything about that. I don't know if you No, I don't know if that was actually happened, but that was pretty funny. It might, it might be true though, because we know that Peter Jackson read the diaries. So it might've been documented in the diaries. So, and I'm pretty sure that Peter Jackson and um, Fran Walsh wanted to be pretty true to the real story. Yeah. So it may be the case that, that she went to a therapist and that he had he'd been like homosexuals. You know? <laughs> he'd been very um, clear with the with uh, Pauline's mother that he was worried that something untoward was going on. Just yeah. let them be gay. <laughs> Who cares? No, no, it's mental illness and we need to eradicate it. Yeah. Oh, I, I think if if they had their friendship today, it probably would have been fine and they would have been yeah. absolutely fine. Hopefully. I mean, depending on where they lived. But I think yeah, yeah, yeah. by today's standards, their friendship and... In an accepting, like, household, households, yeah. it wouldn't have really been made a fuss over there's more of a chance of it being accepted today let's just say that because yeah. i'm not saying it's not easy for lgbtiq people oh, no, today. no no quite the opposite no. but it's definitely um not as difficult as it would have been in the 50s in 1950s it's a less hostile environment and that's not yeah. to say that there isn't still hostility we've got yeah. a long way to go still for sure but we've also come a long way since then yeah so we don't know maybe it would be accepted today but certainly in in 1950s new zealand it was not acceptable but who's to say that that's even what was occurring we don't know yeah but their closeness was being interpreted that way it was definitely being interpreted that way as being very unhealthy and that's at least what the parents thought they were up to yeah so definitely a lot is happening at this time to break the girls up. Yeah. That is something that everybody wants to do. The parents want to do it. All of the therapists or whatever, medical people want to do it. Juliet's parents are separating. Her father's going back to England. Her father, in the movie, he I think he gets fired or something, but he actually quit in real life. Yeah, I see. I read both. Yeah, I, I read in that the he film, resigned. he resigns. Oh, I thought he, he was told he wasn't doing so well or something. I can't remember But now. then, yeah, in the documentary, they made out that he wasn't a very popular rector. He might not have he, been. Yeah, maybe. I also read that he was quite rude to people. Yeah. He was quite rude. He was apparently he was he was quite he was very quiet and studious, but he would snap. He would snap at people for not being if people were stupid or made mistakes, he yeah, would snap yeah. at people who were seen who he saw as less intelligent than him yeah they were bringing that up in the documentary as well and also that hilda was a bit conceited and snobby they did a pretty good job of showing that in the film i think i think so too you could really see like the difference in class you could see how pauline was really embarrassed by it Mm. like when juliet was over for dinner or over for tea or the little function that they were holding and like when 
a border was being shown through and she kind of was just hiding absolutely behind her hand embarrassed by that situation (laughs) and I think it's true to say that Pauline was was very much not envious but she was just swept up in this world because Juliet's family had money and they were socialites and they were well-traveled well-traveled exotic and and so I definitely think Pauline was swept up in that wanted to be a part of their family but at the same time just kind of ignored that Juliet was always sort of left by her parents yeah but Juliet's world (laughs) of this upper class society was not perfect at all like she was was constantly abandoned by her parents and yeah, but it was very seductive for Absolutely. Pauline um, to see that. And obviously Juliet wanted to be a part of that as well um, because she was in that world, even though it wasn't perfect. I think, you know, living in this fantasy world, she maybe she thought that it could be perfect. And that's one of the reasons why the girls hatched the plan that they did hatch was because the idea was go to, they would either go to Hollywood yeah. Um, and that's a part of the film and that's the only part of the film that you see. But in real life as well, the the idea was that to kill Honora would mean that Pauline could go with Juliet and her family yeah, to South Africa to be a part of their family. Yeah. So that was what they thought would also happen in real life. I think in the film they just focus on the Hollywood dream. Yeah. But in real life it was several different things Yes, basic, but that all led up to Pauline going with Juliet wherever she ended up. Exactly. That, that was the end goal. Yeah, exactly. Was that they were going to stay together. That was it. Nobody was going to get in their way. And they saw Honora as the obstacle because, one, she was like, absolutely not. Like, no, you're my daughter. You're not going to go away with some other family. Yeah. And there was no way for... Pauline to get a passport without her parents' consent because she's underage. So there was no way this plan was ever going to work out the way that they no, wanted it to. It never. It's insane that they thought that it was going to play out in any way in their favour. It was. It's really weird, isn't it? Because it wasn't practical at all. No, it wasn't well thought out. You, you look at what they did, there was no well thought out thinking behind it. Nobody falls... And dies like that. No, that's a very... With they, multiple <laughs> wounds to the face and head. She had like 47 injuries. Yeah, very big lacerations on her head and neck. And like they... I mean, I guess they weren't true crime fans and they, they weren't... <laughs> they didn't have the internet in the 1950s. So they didn't have this access that we do now to the internet to know how to plan a murder. <laughs> Even though it was would. planned, it kind of shows a bit of impulsiveness i think as well because it was just kind of like get rid of the obstacle get rid of the obstacle like they planned they made a decision to use a brick instead of a sandbag and they knew they were going to put it in the stocking it was definitely premeditated there's nothing there's nothing denying that but there was no thinking behind it there was definitely no logic behind it for sure they there was no practicality no logic and so it was planned over at least a couple of days, if not weeks. I have a couple of excerpts from Pauline's diary, which, again, it's part of the script of the film, so anyone can get these. But um, I just thought I'd read them out because it's interesting. So two nights before the murder occurred, Pauline wrote in her diary the following. We discussed our plans for a moitering mother and made them a little clearer. 
Peculiarly enough, I have no qualms of conscience. Or is it peculiar enough? We are so mad. Yeah, I've got the same thing. <laughs> and and so she always spells murder murdering, which I don't know. I'm I'm definitely not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I think that's a little bit of not using the word murder because it's too serious. So changing it to be something else to make it to sort of disconnect from yeah, what yeah, is yeah. really to happening. Distance. From it. To distance from it and make it seem not as serious. So they, they say moida like they're fucking gangsters. Yeah, moida. <laughs> and that really shows you how sort of how embedded in fantasy this whole thing was. They weren't even using proper words to describe it. Um, and did you want to read the other? You've probably got the same quote as me, the second quote. And again, this is also in the film. So Deborah rang and we decided to use a brick in a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moida fully. I feel very keyed up as if I was planning a surprise party. So the next time I write in my diary, mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. What a strange, strange thing to write in your diary. Yeah. Just well, yeah, it's pretty fascinating, I think. It is. It really gives you an insight into Pauline's mind. But the fact, you know, like... Pauline's the only one that we have a lot of the the insight from, but Juliet was in on it too, so there's no discluding her from that as well. Like Anne Perry is very, she, I feel like she's a little, she's rather dismissive about her role. I think in she it. is too. I think she is too. Like she yeah. she acts as if she was just helping out a friend. Uh huh. And that she didn't want her to kill herself, which is bullshit. I don't think she's... I don't think that... I did hear... I read a few accounts of Pauline vomiting a lot and losing a lot of weight yeah. rather quickly. So that's disordered eating behaviour. Uh, around the time when there was a lot of this, like, Juliet was moving, mm. they're going to be split, that kind of thing. Okay. So I think... And you see that Pauline mentions a lot in that part in the film about... Which is taken from her diary about... Thoughts of committing suicide and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I feel like when Ann Perry talks about that, she really puts a distance on how entwined she actually was I think so. with this. And you could argue that that's how she's coping as an adult, sure. coping with what she did. Sure. And when you see her in- interviewed about it, and there are a couple of interviews out there, if anyone's interested, with Ann Perry or Juliet Hume, and um, she does seem like she's really disconnected from it. Like she's almost like she's talking about someone else. She talks with very little emotion about what happened. Yeah, I found that too. Very, very little regret comes forth in her discussions about what happened, I think. Yeah. And she'll say the words, but it's not emotive at all. No. So I find that a bit disturbing, but I also understand that that might be just how she's chosen to cope with what happened. Well, yeah, like, otherwise, what is she going to do? Like, sit there and torture herself every day over it. But, uh, yeah, I just find taking her account of it, I'm like, "Mm, I don't don't know. You just seem to dismiss it a little too much for it to sit, for your account to sit so comfortably. Like, she didn't have much involvement. Yeah. And that she was more distanced from it. Like, I don't think so, because there's always accounts in... 
when when Pauline's writing about this, it's always wee, wee, wee. And when you see how worried the parents were about how close they were and how reclusive they were to anyone else and that kind of... They were obsessive and obsessed with each other. They were in each other's worlds so much where, you know, the thought of being separated was torture. Yeah, and I don't think that you can just say that it was one of their ideas. I think they they hatched the plan together. They spoke about it together, and that is clear from Pauline's diary. And And from the fact that Juliet eventually admitted that she also struck Honora. Yeah. She assisted. She did eventually admit that. And so so what happened was um, on the 22nd of June, 1954, um, there was a plan for the girls, for Honora to take the girls to Victoria Park, which is in the Port Hills just south of Christchurch, still in Christchurch, but just south of the main centre of Christchurch. Yeah, and this was like a farewell dinner because Juliet's family were locked in to leave on the 3rd of July. Yeah, so this was like a the last hurrah, a trip that they were going to take um, the girls together. And obviously being so young, a parent needed to go with them and they asked well, if was Nora could come for, with them. Uh, yeah, totally. And yeah. I think it was a gesture. Yeah. But it, it also, it was a way to into the spider's web. <laughs> I, think, I think so. But it was also, the girls were told that they could spend some time together before they yeah. before they left. Because I think the parents did feel sorry for them. And they thought, well, they're going to be apart soon anyway. How much yeah. did they, how little did they know about what was coming? Otherwise they never would have allowed it. So the idea was the girls would go up with Honora into, um, you know, they'd have a bit of a picnic and a hike or whatever. I think they went to, a, the idea was to go to a little tea shop. There's a little tea shop near the park and um just like they did in the film they go and they have some tea and scones and whatever you have sandwiches whatever you have at a little <laughs> tea shop and this part of Christchurch is is really beautiful i've not i've i've never been to victoria park but we drove through um this area in the hills just south of the city and it's so beautiful it's near where the gondola ride is if anyone knows Christchurch at all I don't know it very well but there's a gondola ride in these hills on the other side of the highway not on the Victoria Park side on the other side and it's really beautiful it's and you know you see it when they're on the bus going through you can see some of the countryside and it's really stunning so it's very like woody very um lots of trees it's quite a mild um, there's, it's you know very temperate around Christchurch, so it's like pine trees and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. It actually, when we went there, it reminded um, Martin said that it reminded him a lot of Sweden. Actually, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's quite temperate. If you look up Victoria Park, there's some really spooky pictures of Victoria Park from this era, um, and I've oh, seen nice. some like stupid documentary excerpts from documentaries i couldn't you found a whole documentary i could only find a few excerpts from ones of people like going to where they thought the murder was and being like this is where it happened oh, i hate things like that i hate those videos <laughs> it's like just because you're there like who, my boyfriend watches this <laughs> kind of shit all the time on youtube <laughs> you don't even know that that's exactly where it, we don't know exactly where it happened but anyway so it happens always got the worst narration oh because no. it's yeah you know because you know the situation 
scene isn't dramatic enough. <laughs> so you just got to add to the drama with your crappy narration. And incidental Ugh. music. Like, we don't know how to feel about a murder already oh, without incidental God. music. <laughs> so apparently um, they went for a walk down a pathway into a wooded area within the park. Um, it's about 130 meters down. I don't know. That sounds about right. Who cares? I read 130 oh, meters down. I got so. somewhere else. I got different. Oh. I got 350 meters. Oh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> but you see all this in the film because it was all shot there. Yeah, and it's quite a long um, scene, that one, when they're walking down into the forest because the anticipation is quite huge because you oh, know what's yeah. coming. Everyone knows what's coming. Everyone who's watching the movie. You see it at the beginning of the film. They show yeah. a little bit from it and you have an idea of what's going to happen if you know anything about the story. You know what's coming. So there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of build-up in that scene. And I think they did it quite well. They did it really sensitively, which is not like Peter Jackson at all. But this is a different subject matter because it's real life, true crime. So he didn't show a lot of blood, guts and gore. No, it was more insinuated and suggested. The impact of that, I find, is way more impactful than showing everything Absolutely. Because um, I mean, every time I watch this film yeah. and it gets to that point, I just feel my – I know what's coming and I feel my body tense and the sound of the brick on the head always just gets me – Oh, it's horrible. And, and the screaming. Uh, the mother is screaming like she didn't know what was coming. No. She didn't know um, what had happened at first and, and was really shocked. And, you know, I, I think that was done really well in the film. And, yeah. and we know that Peter Jackson is a fan of Hitchcock, so – I think when it came to this movie, he must have taken a bit of Hitchcock, you know, because Hitchcock never needed to show blood and gore or lots of blood and gore. He did show some, obviously, but not. he didn't need to show the whole act no. to, to for it to be impactful. And definitely in this movie, you, you, you definitely get a sense of what's happened without having to see the whole business. Yeah, I mean, because you yeah. see the blood on Honora's face. Mm-hmm. So you know that, and you, but even before then, you see Pauline get the weapon ready. Well, Juliet gets it um, from near the house, and she puts it in. Yeah, yeah. in her handbag. But yeah. on the scene on the path, you see mm. her get it, and you see her like swing it, but you don't yeah. see it strike. Ooh, but you don't need to. Yeah. You can see it in your head. That's the thing. Yeah, like you yeah. know from that action and then the sound like you know what's happening without being shown too much and I find that to be a way more effective use of editing than some films it just seems to be the go these days with a lot of horror is like you show everything and for me that loses any effect yeah, well, I mean, it depends what kind of film you're making. I mean, Peter Jackson made a lot of gore films where the purpose of them was to show a lot of gore and stuff, but those are different films. They're not murder films, and they're definitely not true crime films. But even today, with a lot of, like, true crime or thriller, I think they just... There's no cleverness to it. Yeah. They want to show you all the torture and stuff, and it's... Like, you can't tell someone what's terrifying. You have to play on their sense of ter- their own sense of terror. Yeah, true. And so the less you show, but the more you insinuate or suggest, then the more effective that is. Yeah, I mean, it's just like Psycho is a great example. I'm a big Hitchcock fan as well. And you didn't need to show the knife going in no. to the body in Psycho. You just needed to see the blood going down the drain and you knew what was happening. Yeah. You knew and there was a picture in your mind. You could feel it you know in your body you could feel it 
because you knew exactly what was happening. And Hitchcock did a great job at that kind of thing. And I think that might have, because I've read that Peter Jackson was a big Hitchcock fan, very influenced by some of his films. So I'm pretty sure that that might have been one of the ideas here. But also in order to be sensitive to the material, um, yeah. the true true life occurrence, I think they wanted to be very sensitive to it. And they um, didn't actually shoot it exactly where it happened. They were going to, and I read that when they came to the spot, which I've read a lot about different spots, like where murders have occurred and the temperature drops and it just gets really silent. And they're like, this is too creepy and eerie. And so they just went a bit further down the path to actually shoot it. Yeah, especially having known what had occurred there, because maybe they wouldn't, if they didn't know, or I don't believe in ghosts or anything because it's never... I've never seen a ghost. I've never had any experiences that can be explained by ghosts. So that's just me personally. I don't really believe in that. I think it's true that there can, if you know what's happened somewhere, that you can have a sense of that in in an area. And and you know, if you know about a murder or something horrible that's happened, it can definitely play on your imagination. I kind um, of feel like after being to certain places, and this, there's no science to back this up, so this is a little airy-fairy and whatever, and if you don't agree with it, it's fine. But I've been in several places where I feel like certain events leave a residue, and that's what you, you kind of pick up on. Like, people talk about the air, the temperature dropping in Auschwitz, and that you know there's just a different sense and feel and whether you're aware of it or not i feel like there's a residue of that trauma left behind yeah that's probably true i mean there it is true to say that anyone going to auschwitz knows what happened there yeah so a part of it is obviously their own imagination their own mind thinking about what occurred there but yeah it's um it's one of those things So, yeah, as we said, Pauline had the brick in the stocking in her bag and she took it out and she was the one who started bludgeoning Honora. Poor Honora. I mean, she didn't know this was coming at all. You would never even guess. I mean, of course not. You're not going to suspect that your child and childhood friend is going to murder you. Your own child. I mean... That, it's so fucked up. It really is. Like I think this is one reason why it became so sensationalized because it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. It, it's really unbelievable and incredible that this happened. It's just freaky as shit. And, it, <laughs> and interesting that the, for the few days leading up, like both girls were being particularly nice to her. Yeah. Because oh. they knew what they were going to do to her. Like in the film, offering her the, the, the scone last, or crumpet yeah, or whatever like, it was. treat yourself, mum. Yeah, treat yourself. It's <laughs> the last treat you're going to have because we're going to kill you. Awful. Like we said, I think at first Juliet denied having been part of the actual physical act of murder. Yeah, her. but she eventually... We'll get to that, though, because what happened afterwards... So once Sonora's been beaten several times, they run back to the tea shop. Mm. Pauline's the first one to speak and she exclaims that mother's fallen and hit in her head and, you know, she's hurt. Yeah. So it was one of the men that worked at the store who found... Honora and then of course the police were called Juliet's father was also called and he picked the girls up and took them back to Ilam which was the house that they were staying at mm. and then the and the police officer who found 
Nora knew immediately that she had been attacked. Yeah, I mean, she like was found wasn't... with multiple lacerations to her face and her head, and and she had she had marks on her fingers, which yes. they, they believe she might have put her hand up to her face to to cover which her face. Which is normal, not normal. Which is a common um, injury for people who have been attacked about the face. Also, facial injuries tend to denote a personal association with the attacker. Yeah. So the body was found, I've got here that the body was found 350 meters along a pathway from the kiosk. She was actually lying on her back. Uh, her head was battered. She was facing slightly down the hill. She had about 45 injuries, mainly about the head and face. Awful. The bloodstained brick was laying beside her head and on a nearby grassy bank, they found the stocking. So that's how you, they knew straight away. I mean, from the injuries and finding the weapon. I mean, it's not yeah. exactly hard to figure out it was murder. Exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and the fact also that when the girls returned to the kiss, they had blood all over them. Yeah. And Juliet apparently was obsessing about washing. She wanted to get the blood off. She was yeah. just, ups, like, hysterical about that. Yeah. And I so, wonder how they felt after it had happened. Like, did were they did they regret? I mean, what would have been what would have been their mind state after uh, it happened? Who knows, man. I mean, but they carried on with it, and they they hit her forty five times. That's not that's really extreme. That's not just attempting to do this. That no. is really not half assed That that's commitment to the murder. Yeah, that's it's really fucked up. Yeah. And she would have been dead at, at some point while they were... I mean, she she was dead when they found her, so she would have been dead yeah, like while the, they were bludgeoning uh, her. The blood ran down the path. Fucked <sighs> up. was evidenced as well that... Evidenced as well that she died there. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a brutal attack. Like, 45 times? You don't need to do that 45 times. You get enough... A handful of blows in, you just leave someone there. I don't know from experience, but <laughs> <laughs> I realize I'm like, <laughs> I'm talking about this like I have experience. No, I've just read a lot about this kind of fucked up shit. But please don't attack anyone. No, I don't <laughs> condone it. <laughs> we don't condone this violence. No, it's but- really messed up. After that, I had to listen to some comedy podcasts after watching and reading all this shit this morning. Oh, I've been listening to and watching so much true crime stuff recently. It gets a bit overwhelming after a while, doesn't it? I can't it? do it anymore. Yeah. So after after the um, police found the body. I believe they went and they searched the Parker Reaper residence and that's where they found Pauline's diaries. They also, the police did also interview the girls the same day. It was about eight o'clock that night. I think they stuck to their story at first, which was that she yes. had fallen and then that, that very soon fell apart. Yeah, so Pauline was questioned first and I've actually got, I wrote down what she actually said. Okay her accounts of the events so she said we were walking up the track having been at the bottom i was leading and mother and deborah were behind me mother still calling her deborah Deborah. jesus christ (laughs) mother suddenly slipped and fell she twisted sideways and hit her head on a rock or something she seemed to keep tossing up and down and hitting her head so basically she was saying that she'd hit her head and then she was convulsing and just kept smacking her head Uh on this rock Mm. and then when asked about the stocking she said we didn't take mother's stocking off i was wearing sockets i had an old stocking in my bag i used it to wipe up the blood and so yeah initially like she didn't change the story at all 
Juliet backed up the story of Mrs. Parker falling and hitting her head. And then Senior Detective Brown interviewed Pauline again because he he just didn't believe her. Mm. Because it doesn't make any fucking sense unless she was an epileptic. But even then... Yeah. It's not consistent with the injuries. No. So, yeah, eventually she admitted to hitting her mother that she decided to do it a few days prior. And she stated that Juliet had not known about it. Mm. But that... I In the documentary... They said that that came up because Pauline, I mean, Juliet changed her story like three times. So initially she said that she wasn't even there. <laughs> there are <And> witnesses. <laughs> that was, and so then mm. Pauline changed her story to cover for Juliet. But then Juliet changed her story again and she was like, oh no, I was there, but I'd walked away. And then I heard arguing behind me and turned around and saw Honora on in a squatting position. Mm. And then Pauline hit her. And then by the time she reached Pauline, Honora was dead. So trying to save herself, really. Yeah, um, making herself an accessory. Yeah. And then in the third, then in the, her last statement, she said, "No, I." I hit uh, Honora as well. I participated. And it's interesting because when you see, like we were saying before, when you see Anne Perry talk about it, she says she helped somebody kill their mother. Yeah. That's what she says. And in this interview I saw with her on YouTube, she says they were like talking about her being an accessory. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not an accessory. You participated. It's like being a co-author, like you're, or a co-host like we are. Yeah, yeah. You're a (laughs) co-murderer. Yeah. That's what you are. You are not an assistant murderer. You were a co-murderer. You helped this event take place. Yeah. And you took part in the outcome. (laughs) You helped murder this woman. So the trial commenced on August 23rd, 1954, and it went on for a total of six days. Uh, So the girls were pleading not guilty is one thing that I read. I think at first they pled not guilty. For reason of insanity. Oh, no. I think later they must have changed it to guilty because I I also – I read that at first they said not guilty and then later they said guilty but insanity. But I've written down guilty and I did read guilty. Yeah, I read guilty as well. Um, The trial focused mainly on the girl's state of mind – and the diary entries. Defense's whole case was basically that the girls were insane, that they weren't of right mind when they did the act. Whereas the prosecution argued that they were incurably mad. Yeah, I, I do have a, um, a quote from the Crown pr- Prosecutor. So that quote says that the murder was a callously planned and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent and perfectly sane but precocious and dirty-minded girls. Yeah, I read that too. So I thought that was a very 1950s prosecutor thing to say. So Yeah. So when the part of their supposed sexual relations came up into the court like that was just a whole spectacle the whole trial really was a spectacle it was really sensationalized in the media front page news around the world yeah yeah especially in new zealand it was would have been front page news for sure everywhere yeah because this sort of thing just didn't happen there Mm. like some of the women that spoke on this documentary were like yeah like there might have been a couple murders a year 
Yeah, if that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it's a, it's, it was a country with such a small population at that time. Yeah. Um, and this, I think this is probably New Zealand's most notorious murder, certainly weirdest historical murder, and it's still fascinating today because of the nature of the murder and the nature of the relationship between the girls. And it's not very common to have two young girls murdering anybody. So no. I, I think even today it is quite a, a, an interesting, fascinating and unusual case. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I found interesting was that it was an all-male jury. Oh, I didn't read that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it... That's not a proper jury. I mean, a jury is meant to be a... You know, Impartial. a jury of your peers and your peers aren't and imba- all men. Unbalanced. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And also, they only deliberated for two hours. You can deliberate for as long or as short amount as sure. you want as a jury, though. They brought something up in this documentary, which I don't know if it's true or not. It might have just been hearsay. But apparently, they were, the jury was in a rush to get out because there was an important rugby game on that <laughs> afternoon. Oh my god. Yeah. That's awful. Right? How disgusting is that? That is really awful. I mean, obviously, they would made their minds up. And I mean, to be honest with you, it is a pretty open and shut case. I mean, you yes. look at all the evidence, including, I mean, she's written it in her diary and they're, they're saying they're guilty. So it's a pretty easy one to deliberate on. I mean, two hours is probably a long time. <laughs> actually true but you know i i and they admit that they did it and i mean they need to be punished for that so i don't think that is unreasonable juliet's mother testified at the trial uh, as did pauline's father if i believe juliet's juliet's father left the country yeah i read that he'd left the country already what a bastard but apparently (laughs) Juliet's younger brother was at boarding school in England and had to, there was some kind of thing with him having to be retrieved. Yeah, so the dad had to go and deal with that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Another big part of the defence's case was folie adieu. Oh, the madness of two. Yeah. Yeah, so joint communicated insanity. So the girls were tried as a unit and they also weren't allowed to speak for themselves yeah or actually allowed to testify because they were underage is that why i think so but i also read and again this documentary speculated that the girls also their behavior in court was quite cold they showed no, no remorse. remorse they were kind of chatting and passing notes to each other and yeah. getting giggly at times like that and when the defense had spoken with Juliet and Pauline, they were they both came across as really um, conceited. Mm. They treated them with disrespect. Um, mm. Well, if Pauline's journal, really if Pauline's journal is anything to go by, they certainly had tickets on themselves, calling themselves so brilliantly clever and yeah, yeah. You know, always saying. I think there was one quote from the film, which is from Pauline's diary, where it's like, um, you know, we're so good and it must be sad to be anybody else who isn't us because we're yeah, so yeah. wonderful and so intelligent. And I think also they he made a point of mentioning in the film that like this fourth world that they could travel to twice a year through on the spiritual days, this religion that they came up with. Um, only 10 people in the world have this ability to go to the fourth world. Like they thought of themselves as being wonderful and superior, superior, exactly to everybody else. 
But because of that conceit, yeah. because of how they projected that and presented that, the defense felt like they weren't going to help their case at all by testifying. Yeah, if so anything, they, they were going yeah. to, to make the jury turn off them even more. They wouldn't want them to speak, even if they if they could or were allowed to. They wouldn't want them to speak. Probably yeah. a pretty good, pretty good uh, idea, I'd say, to not have them speak. And so, of course, the. Um, because of the nature of their relationship, they thought they were lesbians, and then the whole issue of it being a mental illness was used um, as a defense. The jury, however, rejected the defense's assertion of insanity. Yeah, because that mad, the madness of two. I think that that's had only at that time had only been used once before. I think in an American case where there were two young boys who killed a younger boy. I can't remember the story. Something in Loeb. Anyway, it's been mentioned a few times when yeah. reading about this case because there are some similarities. I think maybe we'll link to it when we post this up. But um, yeah, it was rejected then, um, Madness of Two, and it was rejected during the Parker Hume trial as well because it's not. I don't think it has any basis in um, reality, really. No, in um, science or psychiatry or psychology in any way. Yeah, that you have to have it existing there. It's not like it. you become mad with another person. Like it's, it was existing within, their, within themselves beforehand. And that you're both responsible for your own actions, even if those actions wouldn't have occurred without the other. Uh, you are definitely responsible for your individual actions and thoughts and plans. And So yeah, those were the big three. It was the folie adieu, insanity, and Pauline's diary. But the jury, after two hours of deliberation, judged the girls as guilty. And at the time, New Zealand did have uh, capital punishment, corporal punishment. So the death penalty was in place. But because they were underage, Mm. they couldn't be sentenced to death. So instead, they were sentenced to... They were detained at Her Majesty's pleasure in separate institutions for around five years. Uh, Juliet was sent to Mount Hume. Pauline in Arahata. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Yeah. I think they both served about five and a half years. Yeah. It was over five years for each. Juliet was released two weeks before Pauline and was sent directly to her mother in England. And Pauline was held back deliberately well, here's a part of contention. Here's a bit of contention because part of their sentencing was that detainment, and then several sources say that part of their release, part of the conditions of their release, was also that they were never to meet again. But then we also read that that was not actually true. So I don't know. I in more sources that I came across, that specification of that they could never meet again came up. Yeah, but and I know that at the end of the movie, um, it says that comes up in the and writing, the, and and when um, Peter Jackson is interviewed, and when Peter Jackson is interviewed, he talks about it as well as being a condition of their release, and and also in the documentary and in an article from like 1989 that I yeah. read. So this has been floating around for a while. Yeah, but I, I did read it in a few sources, in quite a few sources actually, that it's not true, and also how why would a why would they say that if it couldn't ever be policed? Because how do you police that? Like, you know, especially decades later now, how, how could you possibly police that? You can't arrest somebody for, you know, in another country for 
<laughs> that's yeah. not a con it can't be something that you can enforce so it seems like it, it's a bit of a silly thing for them to have said but maybe it was either an offhand comment when they were released or it maybe it was something they said i don't know it, who knows but yeah it's it's um it's not verified as to whether that was actually something they said as a condition of their release but it's certainly a sort of romantic uh, in the cinematic sense of the word a romantic like how they talk about illness as being romantic. It's sort of a romantic idea yeah, yeah. that two people should be told they could never meet again by, by the by the court, by the judge. You know? Well, it's like a tragic <laughs> love story. Yeah. And and what's more, what's even more fascinating about this is um, where they are now. So as we've spoken about, Anne, um, Juliet Hume changed her name to Anne Perry. After, after the murder, she'd mo she moved back to England, but then she spent some time in America. Yeah. She moved back to England and became a crime writer. So she's actually a crime writer, which yeah. is, you know, she writes about murders and stuff like that, which is a bit creepy. Um, but, yeah, so now she lives in Scotland. Pauline Parker also um, ended up moving around. Um, she moved to Britain and eventually also settled in Scotland, which I is know. super weird and freaky. She has like a, ho a horse riding school. Yeah, and I don't know if you came across this nap, but there was um, some sensationalistic news story that I came across where a dude bought Hillary Nathan Pauline Parker's house that she had built or she'd done some renovations on or something. And um, she'd done some painting in the house and there are all these fucking weird murals that she painted. No, I never saw that. Oh, my goodness. It's weird as fuck. So, okay. So, first of all, Hillary Nathan has never, ever done any uh, media since the murder. No, she won't she, speak about she it. She won't speak about it. And it's only come out, like, quite recently who she is. You know, I think people should respect her privacy. She's not, she doesn't owe anything to anyone. Anne Perry chooses to speak about the murder and that's absolutely fine as well. But Hillary Nathan or Pauline doesn't want to talk about it. And I think people should respect her privacy. But it was just really fascinating because some of these murals, and I, I don't know if she really did paint them or not. It could just be bullshit. Who knows? But some of these murals are like two girls in a cauldron with fire behind them and then like two girls split oh, by no. I'm <laughs> sorry I've just looked them up on my phone they were in the documentary oh yeah yeah okay well then it, it must be must be verified I... in that case but we maybe we'll p post some pictures up of them because they are really freaky murals that kind of depict almost just they're just really freaky so we'll we'll post some pictures up I don't know if they, they're freaky, but it kind of shows that that fantasy world, for Pauline at least, never really left her. I mean, I think they're freaky if you know about the murder. Sure. sure. They're freaky as in they're odd and they're unusual. And if you know about the murder, I mean, to me, I think they're freaky because, you know, it just shows you that it's still on her mind. That's the one I was thinking of, these two girls with fire. I thought they were in a cauldron, but they're not. <laughs> with fire in front of like them. almost like they are, though. In a yeah. cauldron of fire. Almost, yeah. And so, yeah, I think they're quite fascinating. I wonder if she knew that they would become public knowledge when she sold the house. Maybe she didn't know that people knew who she was then, so they would just sort of go unnoticed. When the movie was released and became popular, that's when Anne Perry... Um, decided to start giving some interviews 
she decided to come out rather than be hunted down, basically. So yeah. it was her taking control of that aspect of the situation. Yeah. Which I think is, you know, fine. That, that's probably yeah. it's her prerogative to do that. And like we said, there's a couple of interviews out there with her. So it's definitely an interesting one to go and listen to what she has to say about it. And people are fascinated by the fact that she's a crime writer now. And I think in one of the interviews I was listening to, she was like, well, I write, I write about murder because it's just one of those things that um, stories are about, you know, stories centered around a crime are just interesting. So she just chose to write it, write about that because it's interesting, which is fair enough. I suppose. Which is fair enough. And like, maybe it's a way for her to try and kind of come to terms with and understand her experience. Yeah. With that. Maybe. Yeah. Cause she's, done it (laughs) (laughs) she can write from she did it (laughs) from from her own experiences we definitely recommend um watching this movie Um, absolutely yeah it's it's a really good film and and you know nothing about it is anything other than than wonderful so go and watch it read about the murder because it is fascinating look at those murals we'll post a link to that yeah we'll share those yeah but yeah if you've enjoyed any of peter jackson's work then you'll definitely enjoy this there's a really interesting use of like lighting and color Mm. in it as well all the performances across the board are fantastic yeah and if you if you're a kate winslet fan as well and you want to see her first film yeah um which is how i first watched this movie being a kate winslet fan it's definitely one to watch because um she is just fantastic in it as is melanie linsky as well Not yeah that she's been oh in. yeah two and a half men is a step behind but that's yeah, just yeah. our opinion but yeah. you know everyone needs a job right yeah you gotta pay course. the bills and there's nothing to say that she can't be in two and a half men and be a wonderful actor in two and a half men, yeah exactly which i'm sure she was like yeah. somebody needs to be i know right <laughs> <laughs> anyway because fuck anyway anyway so thanks for joining us again guys thank you hope you enjoyed it yeah look forward to seeing you on the next one we don't know what that is yet but uh, continuing to keep them as a surprise yeah for the moment yeah but yeah we'll see you all soon okay bye. bye